0: This podcast is supported by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers, limiting opportunities for long-term wealth creation. PayPal believes that financial health is essential for people to pursue a better future for themselves and their families. That's why PayPal is committed to supporting, sustaining, and investing in black-owned businesses. Learn more by visiting the newsroom at PayPal.
1: This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Reductions in smoking and medical interventions like defibrillators have helped reduce the mortality rate of heart failure. Still, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer globally, taking more than 17 million lives each year, according to the World Health Organization. Dr. Valentin Fuster is an internationally recognized cardiovascular medicine researcher and the physician-in-chief of the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. He says the mortality rate for heart disease is starting to creep back up, and that's because the focus is on taking care of people after they have a heart problem, rather than teaching them to take care of themselves from a young age.
2: We are ignoring, absolutely ignoring, something that common sense should tell us is important. And that is, a disease that starts at age 15, at age 20, look what we are doing. We start working or talking about at age 50 or 60. I mean, this is a complete nonsense.
1: Dr. Fuster's research reveals that heart disease shows up in teenagers and that poor cardiovascular health can affect cognitive function later in life. So now he's devising methods of teaching children as young as three about good nutrition, exercise, and how to deal with stress because that will help them be healthy for the rest of their lives. Cardiologist Danielle Bilardo specializes in plant-based nutrition to prevent and reverse risk for heart disease. She is the director of cardiology and co-director of research and education at the Institute of Plant-Based Medicine in Newport Beach, California. She speaks with Dr. Fuster about his research and shares her expertise on healthy lifestyles. Here's Dr. Bilardo.
3: Thank you, Dr. Fuster. You know, when we look at the way cardiovascular disease has changed over time with the way that we diagnose it, the way that we treat it, and now with more focuses on prevention, you've been in the field of cardiology for a while. I mean, you are truly um, a pioneer in cardiology and you've You've been involved in so much research and so much um, in the change in the way we look at cardiovascular disease. So, what do you think with regards to the way cardiology has evolved and the way we look at prevention of disease has changed over time?
2: Well, I think thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, I, I think if we go back historically, it's interesting that cardiovascular disease. Uh, has been the number, cause, the number one cause of mortality across the world for a number of years. And this has decreased progressively. And the question is why? The only factor that really has worked in this decrease in cardiovascular disease has been the cessation of smoking. And then the technology, that is patients who go into intensive units are treated with defibrillators and so forth. So the mortality has decreased, but there is something unfortunate is beginning to increase again. And it's beginning to increase again because we don't take care of ourselves. People live, live a little bit longer, but the mortality in cardiovascular disease is number one. So there's a lot to be discussed, but certainly this is the way I see over the last uh, 30 years or so.
3: And would you be able to describe a bit, even with all of the work you've done in screening and detection in cardiovascular disease and you know what we can expect with regards to different age brackets who should be screened and how that works for the general population? Because the changes in screening have changed so much, and I know you've been huge in this field.
2: When I was with the American Heart Association uh, at least 20 years ago, at that time, the whole issue was to prevent disease, but we focus in the adult population, and we focus a lot on secondary prevention. Secondary prevention means you had a heart attack, and now you try to prevent a second one. And over the years, we began to move into primary prevention, and that is adult people who had the so-called risk factors, uh, cholesterol, obesity, cigarette smoking, in time to see if we could change lifestyle to prevent the first heart attack. I became very disenchanted. In other words, uh, I think adults, we do not change easily if we feel well. In the rather elderly population, and, and I, I don't want anybody to get offended, but if we talk over age of 70, 75, we are now working in how to prevent cognitive dysfunction, how to mm-hmm. prevent Alzheimer's. If we talk in people at middle age, between age 45 and age 60, let's say, what we are trying to do is through imaging technology that is very simple to see if they have disease, and then if they do. And they, are, they don't know until we do this technology, then they begin to change lifestyle. But you have to identify disease for people to react. And then in the early stages, in the young people, we are really working actually with 50,000 children now around the world, which is to educational program with the concept that what you learn when you are between age three to six, the environment that you live, stays for life. And when you are an adult, and we tell you at young age, that health is a priority, the program that we have is to prove that this is correct when this child reaches age 30, age 40, age 50. So these are the three blocks that we are working all on the preventive aspect
3: that 's amazing, yeah, so the that study where they looked at essentially three thousand children that had died between the ages of fifteen and thirty four and they found atherosclerosis began in childhood, so young adults with these significant lesions, even at young ages, um, and so it 's so important that the education starts. Younger, because um, I think that we're under the impression many people in you know listening, you may be under the impression that um, atherosclerosis and, and heart disease is something that only happens to an older population, but it actually all starts developing when we're young.
2: This is a disease that starts at about age 15, and we are following at the present time, uh, believe it or not, 12,000 people in which we follow with imaging at different ages. And the imaging actually is very simple. It's going to become, you know, available to the public. We we use ultrasound of both carotids that supply Mm -hmm. blood to the brain, of the main aorta, and of the arteries of the legs. And with ultrasound, we can see already the early detection of the disease. And then we are following all these people and we are learning a lot. It starts very early in life. That's the time that we can have an impact rather than too late after a heart attack.
3: What have you been uh, learning with regards to the best ways to educate children in prevention and things like that?
2: With children, very basically, there is good evidence that whatever the environment of a child is between age three to six years, it really stays there the rest of their lives. This reality made us to think that perhaps what we should do is to influence these children, uh, implying that health is a priority at that age and maybe this could be then when they are adults they would behave quite different than what is at the present time now we started in Colombia Bogota with 1500 children between age three to six half of them we told them about health 60 hours over a period of six months and what we told them is four things first how the body works, children need to understand that. Second, about the best um, type of nutrition and foods to take. The third, about physical activity. And the fourth, how to control the emotions, preparing them when they are are presented with uh, tobacco, drugs, alcohol, and so forth. And the results were spectacular in terms of how much they learn compared with another group that serve as controls. We learn that those who are intervened, really this has an impact on them at early age, but it tends to get weaker as time goes on. So you have to do a review afterwards, for example, at age five or 10 to do it again. And then it's like explosive. They capture very rapidly when they had the first exposure and what we try to do with the objective is how they behave at age 20 and later and what we are beginning to see is the intervention when it's repetitive has more and more of an impact and later you start less impact you have so you really have to start very early in life
3: that's just so fascinating so the entire program you're saying is uh encompasses education with regards to helping children to uh, realize the dangers of things like smoking, alcohol, drugs, as Absolutely. well as healthy we eating,
2: Absolutely, We prepare them for this because what they capture at this age, it happens later on, they are able to remember what you were told. This is why, to me, is a paradox, Danielle, that in the world that we are today, so little attention is being paid to the teachers with the huge influence that they have in young people. And when you talk about health, is the same thing. If we want to have better lives and better quality of lives and better health, why we are ignoring what happens at these ages? And rather we give to our children what they want without paying attention the huge amount of obesity. Can I tell you? The obesity at this moment in the three studies that we have done, the degree of obesity under age of 20 is 20%. Wow. So what I'm telling you, And society is just thinking, let's prevent disease after a heart attack. Let's do this and defibrillate us. I I am not against it. Look, I work on that and you too. But -hmm. the fact of the matter is we are ignoring, absolutely ignoring something that common sense should tell us is important. And that is a disease that starts at age 15, at age 20. Look what we are doing. We start working or talking about at age 50 or 60. I mean, this is a complete nonsense.
3: There's nothing like preventing disease in the first place. And it does seem that that's been an area that's been, especially in the youth, that's been a bit, you know, under the radar. And so it's fantastic.
2: And it's interesting, Daniel, what you ask about imaging, what we are doing now is when uh, you reach age 25, uh, 30, 40, 50, we are doing imaging of the arteries. And let me tell you what we are finding. And that is, if we look at six systems, you know, the arteries that supply the brain, the arteries that supply the legs, the main aorta, and then the coronary arteries by using calcification and the others is ultrasound. What we are finding is a man age 45, and we did this in in, in actually 4,000 of them. At age 45, two thirds already have disease in one of the systems, in two and three, four, five or six, two first. In women, at age 45, half of them. Later on in women, the disease advances more rapidly. So we are talking about something that is almost universal mm-hmm. and we are not paying attention until we have the first heart attack.
3: So um, to jump age groups a bit, with regards to cognitive dysfunction in the elderly, to the older uh, generation, you've been doing work with that as well.
2: We began to see disease in the main arteries at age 70. More disease in the large arteries detected by imaging, more we could see in the brain with a special technology of MRI that something was going in the white matter of the brain. Basically what is happening is the same factors, risk factors that cause cardiovascular disease and I want to tell them which factors are those because it's very, very important are certainly six. The first one or two that I would call physical, high blood pressure and obesity. Two I would call chemical, you have to take a blood sample, cholesterol and blood sugar. And then two that are in a way behavioral, and these are cigarette smoking and lack of exercise. Okay, then what we did, we looked at these risk factors and certainly was a good correlation between these risk factors that I mentioned and the disease in the large arteries. The same risk factors affect the tiny vessels of the brain. And then those lesions that we saw 10 years ago, now what we see are small areas of the brain that are working less metabolically because there's not enough blood supply, and this leads to cognitive dysfunction. If you want to address the issue of cognitive function in the elderly, we are now finding that one of the main issues, and even we see this in Alzheimer's disease, is the same risk factors that cause heart attacks and strokes are affecting the microvascular of the brain and cognitive function. So what I would tell you, and I tell this to my children and my grandchildren, and that is, please behave, because the issue is not whether you are going to prevent a heart attack, is how your head is going to be working with you are in the elderly stages. This is all fascinating, so we are talking about promoting health now, starting very, very early
3: what's so interesting that you just pointed on there is that so many disease processes, um, like when we look at cancers, when various cancers, when we look at various different kinds of heart disease, whether it's heart failure or atrial fibrillation or high cholesterol, or whether it's coronary artery disease, or when you look at many autoimmune diseases, you know, a lot of diseases that in general have a lot of the same underlying risk factors. So, you know, mitigating those same underlying risk factors Help to reduce the risk later on for various diseases. Um, which is why I know you're a big proponent for the Mediterranean diet because we have so much robust data showing us that it can help not only with regards to cardiovascular disease prevention but you know eating more plants and more whole foods and less red meat can help with a certain kind of cancer prevention and various other disease processes so one thing that's good for one I always try to emphasize with patients one thing that's good with for one body process and one thing that's good for your heart is also going to be good for the rest of your body with whether it's your GI tract or, or your liver. So focusing on those six behaviors you mentioned, um, the, the six modifications we can try to do are really important. So how do you think people listening, um, knowing that these are the six things we really have to focus on, um, what do you think these, I think going to obesity strategies in general, like how do you think people can approach this?
2: What you said is so correct. It is not cardiovascular disease that we want to prevent. We want to prevent cardiovascular disease, we want to prevent cognitive dysfunction of the brain, and we want to prevent cancer. And you touch into the Mediterranean diet, it's very interesting what you talk about, because it's interesting that when you look, all the risk factors that we know may have implications, uh, cigarette smoking, nutrition, and so forth. But the best data actually, in my view, comes from the Mediterranean diet, in which the appropriate diet can actually decrease all the three entities that I'm talking about. And I think this is fascinating because in the, me as a citizen, I want to be healthy when I am age 85 and with good quality of life. And I am not going to pick up cardiovascular disease and now I start running miles because the heart is going to be better. The same risk factors are really affecting the three disease entities. Cognitive function, cancer, and cardiovascular disease. And here's the question. Why things are not going well? Why now the mortality is increasing? And you know why? has to do with ourselves. Either we take care of ourselves or we don't. Either we decide that our health is important or our health is not important. If it is important, you will start with exercise. and Exercise will be the door opening to better diet and so forth. And I try to emphasize this because many journalists, they come to me, This give us the clue to prevent cardiovascular disease. And you know what they tell them? The clue is your head. That's where the clue is, whether you decide to do it or you decide not to do it. It applies to all the entities we talk about.
3: How do we then encourage it besides education and besides using education in the youth, how do we motivate our patients? So, you know, one thing I do is in my practice, we have a multidisciplinary team, so we have a registered dietitian um, who works with people. But, you know, like you said, at the end of the day, it does have to come from the patient.
2: Well, you know, one of the problems uh, that we have with changing behavior is sustainability. It's interesting the first of the year all of us think that the next year is going to be fantastic we make our list and and then we arrive in february and march and we forgot what we wrote generally the first and i i think the issue here is sustainability i think it's easy to motivate people in a short term
3: mm-hmm.
2: but i think it's quite complicated in a long term and this is why you know it's ourselves and is. This is what we found with children. From time to time, we have to give a, a push and then things get better and better. So I think the sustainability of us as adults has to come from something that is done repetitively. And I will tell you one experiment that we did, Daniel, that you might be interested in, maybe you know, is a study, the group group therapy. In other words, we, we picked up, we did three studies with this one in the island of Granada another it was in Spain, and another is now uh, in uh, in New York, and basically it's the, in Harlem, and basically it's to get a group of people that have problems with health, and they help each other, and it's interesting, there's always a leader, and the leader has to be in big trouble, because people actually follow, we have a tendency to feel somebody who is weak, we tend to become attached to that person. So we did this, and then we compare this with normal individuals. This is all published. And we follow them for three years. And the results were fascinating. The group that is group therapy, they meet every month. And it's a peer pressure. You know, if you are obese you know, you and I uh, smoke. And the results were fantastic at two years of follow-up. Compare with the group that not the group with the individuals that we told them but we didn't meet and then at two years of follow-up begins to drop now what we have to do is to do it again at three years to intervene again the group therapy so all the studies that we are doing we are finding the same thing we can start and there are different methods to start children group therapy and so forth there are different methods but the sustainability Really, we have to decide to go back again and to do it. I'm not going now to define spiritual exercises. This is not the, the this is not the appropriate place to say. But I, I went to the Jesuits, and I remember very well that every three years I have to have just for seven days we go to a monastery. Yes. And do, uh, yeah. but the fact of the matter is, the concept is very important concept. We, in humans, we have to be repetitive. And in health is the same thing. The question is, what is the motor engine? And it's you to start with. And then we need motivating triggers, which in our case are children, or in our case is group therapy. And there are others I suspect, but that's the way I see it.
0: This podcast is supported by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers that limit opportunities for long-term wealth creation. The global pandemic has impacted vulnerable populations and underserved communities especially hard. PayPal believes that financial health and security is an essential foundation for people to pursue a better future for their families and communities and to join and thrive in a more equitable global economy. Everyone should have access to affordable, convenient, and secure financial services, and PayPal is committed to fulfilling this mission by championing equality, diversity, and inclusion inside the company and outside. PayPal is working to address the economic underpinnings of racial inequality. Learn more about how PayPal is helping to close the racial wealth gap by supporting, sustaining, and investing in Black-owned businesses and communities visit the newsroom at paypal.com.
3: It has to come from within. I actually sometimes find patients with lifestyle change, once they actually start to feel better too, sometimes even just feeling an improvement in health can be a motivator to stay on that path. So when someone starts to you know, lose weight and improve their blood pressure and starts to exercise more, that, that on its own can help you know, self-perpetuate the, the individual to be able to continue it. And actually, even if you look at the nutrition and dietary literature, um, you know, there's all sorts of different dietary groups that want to say their diet's the best. And even, you know, in the Keto group, when they're their, their biggest proponent, when they mention you know the Verda study and they mention how they've sustained weight loss for two years, well, you have to look, you know, when you look at that study, really what they had there was health coaches that were really supporting those individuals to maintain that diet for two years. You're wondering, okay, well, is it actually a metabolic feature of ketosis or was it really just that you had so much support? I want to ask you two health-
2: questions, Danielle.
3: Health I want coaches. to ask
2: you two questions. See how sure. you answer them. What is your experience? And one is about exercise and the other is about diet. Okay. Mm-hmm. About exercise, first is when you tell people to exercise, I suspect is what you like to do. And I think this is important. You don't put somebody to do whatever it is and they don't like it. I found bicycle, the stationary bike is very helpful because you dominate the stationary bike, 30 minutes a day, five days a week. If you go to a treadmill, then the treadmill dominates you. So there's an issue here that I found quite a bit interesting. And that is, if you do exercise, you have to dominate it. But what I found most interesting is that the exercise motivates to a better diet. In other words, if you're asking me, what is the opening door to take care of yourself? I tell them, is an exercise bike, 30, day, 30 oh. minutes a day, five days a week. And they begin to eat better. They begin to lose weight and so forth. Is this your experience?
3: That's a really great point. Yes. I think that some people are more motivated by increasing exercise. I think it depends on the patient's level of, of, of course, obesity and, you know, functional status. But I, I agree. I, I tend to agree with you. I think that in general that exercise can be a huge, huge motivator. Do you think that, um, do you think that you still see now with regards to, I know you work with obviously with patient groups all over the world and in America and in all over New York and everywhere. Do you still see smoking as a huge issue?
2: It is a huge issue.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It is a huge issue. And, uh, and you know, uh, I have a comment here uh, that says smoking frustration continues. I <laughs> so just have a written statement because of all the risk factors that we you and I are talking about. Mm-hmm. Obesity can be a problem, but, but there are genetic factors there that can be very frustrating, not losing, not able to lose weight. But certainly cigarette smoking is a problem, and this movement now of the young people into the electronic uh, cigarette smoking, bit. you know, I feel very worried about it because mm-hmm. the data that is coming out, uh, first, you become addicted, and second, there are beginning to come side effects that we are beginning to see. So. I think smoking is a huge issue. Now, I'd like to ask you a few questions about nutrition, since you, I know you are an expert, in this is.
3: <laughs>
2: no, but I think it's important. Let me present to you first my views, for people to understand my question. The vegetarian diet and plant diet, there are three types. This is my understanding. I am sorry if you feel like I'm <laughs> foolish. Okay. One is very strict is all vegetables, nothing, no animal, nothing. The other second is you, you can have dairy and eggs. Is this correct? And the, yes. third, and the third, you can have some degree, very, very little of fish. It's not mm-hmm. correct and so forth. The first one is the one I'm worried about it, not the mm-hmm. other two. The first one, because you really, I have seen patients that come anemic, some have bone problems, and so forth. So whenever we talk about plant and vegetarian diet, are you in favor of this pure, very pure plant diet or not?
3: So I totally understand and appreciate where you're coming from. So I follow a full pure 100% plant-based diet, but first and foremost is that I I don't believe the data shows that that's superior, meaning I think if you look at the epidemiological data, I think that uh, individuals, patients that are 100% plant-based versus pesco-vegetarians, so individuals who eat fish do rather similar, maybe sometimes pesco-vegetarians do better. So I definitely, definitely believe that eating a Mediterranean diet and eating a more plant-based diet with fish, I I don't think any person that is fully plant-based can argue the data against fatty fish being beneficial, but with regards to your concern of um, uh, vitamin deficiency and things like that, I think it is important to address. So I think that whenever anyone's advocating for a 100% plant-based diet, the only reason to go 100% plant-based, I believe at this time, is really just because you choose to. I think the data shows whether you're eating 90% plants or 100% plants, you're, you're, it's not like you're going to get any difference. I believe at this time, but I, I will say that if you're going to do a plant, a fully plant-based diet, you have to make sure it's well planned, and that means that you should be supplementing B12. And making sure that you're having b12 but if you think about it, Dr. Fuster, you know the majority of society should be supplementing b12 you know b12 deficiency is a huge issue with most people over the age of fifty so you know there was a great paper published in Jack they looked at very healthful plant-based dietary patterns and then um, unhealthy plant-based dietary patterns so we're talking about processed foods things like that and they essentially found that you know the more healthful plant-based Foods you eat. So we're talking fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, that the uh, lower cardiovascular risk and risk for um, coronary heart disease. But the more unhealthful plant based foods, so we're talking about processed plant foods. Um, the unhealthier it is. So I think that abstaining from animal products in and of itself does not make you healthy. It's eating a healthful diet that's well planned, and um, I think a Mediterranean diet falls falls into that. And I don't think even the most strictest of uh, vegans. I don't think we can argue that fatty fish has a lot of, you know, beneficial data. I do think you can. I mean, I, we can't argue against it because it does. Fatty fish has so much great data. So I think if we're looking at studies with hard outcomes, we know Know that eating more plants and less red meat, and more legumes, olive oil, uh, more unsaturated fat—you know—multiple levels of nutrition research definitely lead to this. But I think that it's always important to emphasize if you are going to go fully plant-based, it has to be well planned with a B12 supplement and just being mindful of you know getting zinc, getting iodine, all you know everything you need.
2: I think what you are saying is that these type of diets—they are all uh, of benefit compared with uh, diets, well, with red meat and processed diets and so Mm -hmm. forth. I mean, there's no question about it. It's just, I wanted to know the difference because I I see lots of patients with a vegan diet and no, but I think many of them take supplements, but many do not. So I think that's that's the...
3: It's it's an issue to not supplement or to also eat an unhealthy... You can eat a fully processed food vegan diet and not be healthy either. So I think the overall, um, I think our our, um, ACC 2019 primary prevention guidelines did a great job of outlining, you know, the things we want to focus on overall dietary pattern wise for people being healthy, which is, you know, eating fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, and fish, and lean meat, and, you know, lowering your saturated fat intake. I think as long as people stick to an overall healthy dietary pattern, knowing that no one food in one dose is going to cause disease. But, you know, overall health is important.
2: Can I ask you another question? uh, Taking advantage of your expertise. (laughs) One of the things that I have been quite uh, intrigued and actually fascinated is about weight, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, Intrigued because it's very complex. I mean, somebody who's overweight and obese to say, you know, you're misbehaving. This is uh, perhaps those who say you're misbehaving are those who are misbehaving because it's very complex and the genetic factors that they play a role. But there is something that, and actually I wrote in, in some of the books that actually I didn't know could have an impact, but it had some impact. And that is when I want somebody to lose weight, one of the things I tell them if you start counting calories and all of that, you're going to crash because after three weeks, you will be tired of it. And what there has to be a very mechanical thing. And one of the things that actually work and it works in in my practice, and I want to know your opinion. At the beginning, what I wrote in the few books that I was involved with uh, nutrition, I wrote, take half of what you usually eat, okay? This is what I wrote, take half. And actually, there's no question that a number of patients came giving thanks to me. But what I'm learning more and more is the uh, is the way that uh, the pre-agriculture era, let's say, that they only ate twice a day. And mm-hmm. I want you to, uh, which maybe is the same end result that eating half of three times a day. But I'd like to know your opinion about it because at home, when I was more overweight, I was able to to actually eat less of the three meals, mm-hmm. uh, and my wife is debating all of this with me, and the question is, the other possibility is to have two meals a day, and I want to give your opinion about it. All this is clear, is to eat less, but you don't look calories and so forth, yeah. you just look at, the, at the, uh, how much.
3: I think what it comes down to is the caloric restriction, meaning however you're obtaining that caloric restriction, whether it is through time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, or whether it's through three small meals a day, it's the caloric restriction that's going to result in the weight loss. What I think is that there's, what I think that is under researched in nutrition in general is the psychological aspect of it. And that's where I find your research where you're discussing with these health changes with support groups, because I think that when you find a lot of people that are successful, whether it's a vegan diet or a keto diet or intermittent fasting programs, a lot of people are successful because there's a community built around it. And they found a, they find a lot of support with online communities and people sharing this, and especially with fasting. And I think that in general, with fasting, too, whether someone does two meals a day or three meals a day, I think that the metabolic data for there being a significant, robust difference hasn't panned out. And so, I'm not a huge proponent of fasting because I think that. The data hasn't panned out to show it's wildly beneficial at this time, but I will say what I am a proponent of is what works for someone. So if I have one patient that can lose a significant amount of weight because on some psychological level, they feel like they're eating less if they're eating one meal a day, I think then they should continue with that. Um, If some people feel like they need to eat breakfast every day, I think until we have really robust data showing us one way or another, I feel like it really does come down to just caloric restriction and whatever you can do to get calories lower, which is why eating a Mediterranean diet or a plant predominant diet, as I like to say, any diet with a lot of plants is so beneficial because eating, you can get, you know, you, you obviously know this, it's calorically, um, Lower, so it's calorically, like I like to say, calorically poor, so lower in calories, but nutrient dense. So you can be eating a huge plate of fruits, veggies, you know, whole grains, you could be eating some salmon, um, and you're getting a lot of food in, so you're making your, tricking your stomach into being full, but you're actually um, getting less calories in, but more nutrients versus, you know, some of the processed foods, you know, there's so many diet tribes that kind of go back and forth, but a big issue in society are these highly palatable, um, high fat, high carb processed foods that taste really good. And that's really what a big issue is with, with obesity because they taste really good. They're high sugar, high carbohydrate, high fat. I think that regardless of the dietary pattern, if people start eating more, you know, natural foods that seems to help, but it's, you know, as you know, obesity is so complicated and, um, you know, takes a multidisciplinary approach.
2: It's very disciplining. In fact, we just published one paper on on the, looking at the, with imaging, the atherosclerotic plaques, and uh, we look at the people who do not eat breakfast, okay? And it's very fascinating. In fact, they did worse. And the reason why they did worse because they eat the rest of the day. Oh. You, you see, uh, we, yeah. we published this a year ago, two years ago. And oh, we for, kept, with we with we fasting? And that's the problem. So I think you have to be very disciplined when you decide to eat less. Mm-hmm. And this is what, I, what my question was to you. If mm-hmm. you are disciplined you eat less, you lose weight, whether it's you eat twice a day or whether you eat less yes. in each dish, but you have to be dizzy because otherwise it's a rebound phenomenon. Yes. That is, you say, I don't eat any breakfast. And I'm going to lose weight. At the very end, we found these people do worse. But wow. You know, they eat more than the people who actually eat a normal breakfast. So
0: wow.
2: Just the complexities of all of yeah. these are important. Yeah.
3: I think that, you know, I think you're so right. And I think that a lot of it is, um, you know, we... In nutrition in general, we want to value a lot of the metabolic underlying processes, but I think what's ignored is the psychological aspect of it, like you said, of what's going on with regards to what we're what we're thinking. It um, from you,
2: us. It's it interesting. From us. We have to make a decision. we take ourselves seriously or not.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so true. It's so fascinating.
2: I think what I, I think is important in this discussion that you and I are having, is a significant change in, in the view at the present time, and that is we are treating the disease too late. Mm-hmm. And, and we should continue to treat and we should continue to advance in our research. But there is no question that if we want to have an impact on people, whether it's heart disease, whether it's cancer, cancer whether it's brain function, we really have to take this very seriously at a very young age, And really, once you get the habit at these early ages, what what is right when you advance in age and you are an adult, you remember that. And I think that's at least my thesis at the present time, if you want to do the best you can. And and I want to reemphasize what you said before again and again, is the general health that is really good if you do all these things, whether it's cancer, cognitive function, or cardiovascular disease is preventable. And I think we have to get away from this world of consumption, start at a very young age, Mm -hmm. and trying to behave ourselves and to make a decision that this is worth it, to have a good quality of life and a good length of life. And it's a lot to do with our heads, with the way we decide ourselves.
3: So true. And I think you're right. Quality of life is so important. And that is all related and interrelated. And Um, and related to nutrition and smoking and all of the different dietary patterns and as well as psychological stress, which you mentioned as well too, being super important with cardiovascular disease.
2: Well, I want to just perhaps finish this uh, interesting discussion about psychology since you are pointing out psychological stress. And it's interesting when you look at the stress and I can give you my overall view, acute stress can be very detrimental. The chronic stress to me is not that affects you directly, but it affects your behavior. And that is people who are burned out for whatever it is, economically, professionally, family life, they tend to eat more, they tend to become obese, they tend to live a life life that that is chosen, that is different. So I think I wanted to also ask your opinion about psychological stress. I think acute stress can be, Leading to an acute problem, very acute, very aggressive. Chronic stress is more indirect into the way you behave that then can affect your health. And I want to ask your question just to finalize this program.
3: You said it perfectly. You're so right. The chronic stress that leads to these behavior uh, issues with regards to continuing smoking or um, continuing alcohol drinking or drugs, and and so I think that it's it really does need to be addressed same you know i always tell my patients health is not just what you eat it's also what you're consuming in your mind and what you're consuming around you with regards to having good psychosocial relationships which is so important and having a good support system and so i think that psychological health in general i totally agree ties into all of this. And uh, psychological health is a huge part in, in chronic health, heart health, and in disease prevention in general.
2: That message that is important, let's to promote health. And I think this is something we can contribute. It will pay off in years to come. So thank you very much.
3: Well, thank you very much. It was such an honor. Thank you.
1: Dr. Danielle Bilardo is a cardiologist specializing in plant-based nutrition to prevent and reverse risk for heart disease. She also advocates for accurate scientific communication on social media, including evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. Dr. Valentin Fuster is physician-in-chief of the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York and the general director of the National Center for Cardiovascular Investigation in Madrid, Spain. His acclaimed cardiovascular health research spans the globe and has touched tens of thousands of lives. He spoke with Dr. Bellardo. Their conversation was held last week as part of Aspen Ideas Now. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Shauna Lewis and Ava Hartman helped produce today's show. Our music is by Wonderly.
0: I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. This podcast is supported by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers, limiting opportunities for long-term wealth creation. PayPal believes that financial health is essential for people to pursue a better future for themselves and their families. That's why PayPal is committed to supporting, sustaining, and investing in Black-owned businesses. Learn more by visiting the newsroom at paypal.com.